0: Everybody, welcome to another Prog Report podcast. Uh sort of a unique episode here with my special guest, Jeff Bailey. Say hello. Hi. Everybody. Hello. And Nick, god I I don't Hi, want to everybody. put your last name, man. I I
1: hate to do that.
2: Oh, don't worry, man. I'm used to it. I can't remember it myself most of the time. His last <laughs> hello, His somebody. last his
1: last name is Nick. His first name is Prog. Prog Nick. That's <laughs> why I call him Prog Nick.
0: Um <laughs> and uh so to preface the story behind doing this podcast because you know most of the ones we've done are interviews or uh, maybe special anniversaries or the top fives that we've that we do from time to time um, but uh, we thought this this was one that had been sort of sitting there that we wanted to do and just sort of chat about the bands that um, either change a lot over time or don't change or change once in a while because there's an argument in prog rock being progressive that is it progressive if you're not really progressing right or and changing your sound and it really started with um recently with steven wilson releasing his recent single eminent sleaze which is you know continuing down the road of him departing from being just a straight-up prog artist which he's been doing for years and he's been vocal about not liking the label prog and wanting to try different things and trying to be more of a artists along the lines of maybe Bowie or Prince or something like that. Yet his audience is easily, I mean, a prog audience, right? I don't know what a percentage you'd put on it, 90% or something. So with that, um, we wanted to sort of maybe talk about some of the bands that have changed sounds and our thoughts on their changes and whether we like it or not. And so I'm just going to throw sort of a first category out here with um, the bands that are, that made pretty significant changes. And, and so I sort of grouped those into, uh, well, there's the obvious ones, Genesis, which really became an 80s pop band. Uh, yes, sort of did the same thing in the 80s. Um, Opeth went away from being sort of death metal to really progressive. Um, Steven Wilson, of course. And then um, you know I might throw Kansas in there, although it's not as drastic. But in the '80s, I mean, they got rid of the violin, which is pretty significant. Um, mm. So I'll start with with you, Jeff. I mean, what's your? Where are you on bands changing sounds? Do you like it? Not like it? Where are the ones that have worked for you among those bands, or not?
1: Um, I think. I, I mean, I think. Probably there's there's a couple of different things, and I've sort of tried to break it down into into three things. Um, I mean, you've got we we started off talking about Stephen Wilson, and he, and he does seem to kind of do sort of genre shift. Um, so you know the elements that are that are very consistent are, you know his voice and usually his guitar but everything else that happens around it you know he's moved from you know jazz to you know influences right up to the pop stuff i think if you if you if you know a bit about him and know a bit and listen to even those album podcasts that he does he's a very eclectic taste and for him it's just moving around and and, in different styles um so so there's that kind of genre shift i think then there's probably the the what i would say that either writing style or writing method shift and i think when you talked about genesis there you know i think it's it's probably slightly over and I, I know for want of a better word but slightly oversimplifying it to say oh they became a 80s pop band i think you know genesis evolved by by losing members yeah. and and then probably the most significant shift being that you know at a point they all had reasonably active solo careers and rather than being a band who you know wrote individually and then brought all their stuff in to the band they moved to a way of working which was actually we come to genesis with nothing and we get together and jam and we see what comes out and you know probably that started um well some of the stuff on duke more on abacab and by the time the 1983 Genesis Stroke banner album came, that was how they made music from that point onwards. Um, so, so, um, so, so that's kind of the writing style part. And then to me, there's the, um, you know, the um, either influential band members or influential production uh, producers or production members. And yes, being a good example of that, I mean, arguably, the yes. I mean, we're talking about nine hundred one two five, obviously here. But I mean, throughout Yes's career, there were you know there were stylistic shifts between bringing in uh, Steve Howe compared to Peter Banks, bringing in Rick Wakeman compared to Tony Kay, bringing in Patrick Moraz instead of Rick. You know, stylistically, the band did did go through different shifts. Probably none so radical as as nine hundred one two five, but arguably. You know that that began as Trevor Raymond, Alan White, and Chris Squire, um, working with Trevor Horn, who who yeah, was that was clearly really been,
0: supposed to be a different band, yeah, really. yeah. And and it, had yeah. it been, there's no discussion whether or not Yes became anything different.
1: Yeah, so. yeah. And it and it didn't. I mean, it, I mean, there's some of the stuff, you know, pre John joining join that's kicking around. It doesn't sound. It doesn't sound massively different. It doesn't sound massively yes-like either. Um, but as soon as you put John Anderson's voice on pretty much anything, um, it, it it immediately becomes you know becomes aligned to that. So to me, the, those were the those were the sort of the the three the three main categories. Um, I, I think you maybe asked me, you know, do do I like it? Um, I, th- I think the answer is somewhat. You know, every each of the albums I've mentioned are albums that I really like, right. um, and, and I think you know do 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 you think do you think of um, I was thinking about this in the, in the context of yes, and I mean thinking about yes today and what they do, I mean their their focus is very much on that sort of first ten or so albums, you know, pre, um, nine oh one two five, as you might expect given the lineup, you know, if you drop a rhythm of love into the middle of that it doesn't you know there's there's a few times where they did that and it doesn't quite sit or fit so well um and and probably you know something similar with kansas i mean i don't i don't think kansas really these days you know draw from that sort of slightly different 1980s period no
0: i think i think the latest they go is i think audio visions probably yeah and then that's about it
1: and then new stuff whereas perversely a band you know in fact, uh, next month we sh- should have been seeing uh, should have been seeing the Genesis reunion, right. you know. But my guess is that ninety percent of that set would probably have been from, you know, Abacab a- onwards. So it's funny how for some bands that stylistic shift supplants everything that that came before, um, and in some bands it's it's sort of a a sort of a, a side note because maybe you know the band. Trevor Rabin's not in the band anymore or John Anderson's not in the band whatever.
0: How about you Nick? I mean, where are you with some of the changes? What have been the ones that you've liked or haven't haven't liked from from some, some of these bigger bands?
2: Yeah, well, I mean if if you take the the big four bands of the early 70s, obviously Yes, Genesis, ELP and King Crimson. Um so looking at them I I guess the one that stands out as not having made any kind of obvious shift in their style is king crimson but for the others yeah pretty much a change of some sort did happen but i I think there's a common misconception that these big early 70s prog bands quote unquote sold out if you know what i'm saying which which i don't think is true because um what happened in the late 70s was they found they found themselves uh, either on hiatus or or having broken up uh, temporarily uh, but they found that the landscape was changing punk was happening uh, there was a demand, demand for more immediate music um, and it it also happened to coincide at that at that time with um, the conglomeration of the major record companies you know, all, all the smaller labels started coming together and, and making these big multinational corporations, which we know today as the majors. And at that time, there was massive pressure on, on all bands to produce hits, you know, and, and um, they were pressurizing prog bands as much as they were pressurizing anyone else, I suppose. But I, I think that musically, what actually happened was rather than making a clear stylistic shift to being pop, quote unquote. Uh, I think what rather happened was, sure, there would be the odd the odd song that, that might be radio-friendly in terms of what the record label was demanding. Um, uh, you've mentioned Rhythm of Love. I mean, another one would be, would be Love Will Find a Way, Owner of a Lonely Heart, just speaking about yes. Uh, sure, so they made those songs which were radio-friendly, I suppose. But when you listen to the rest of 90125, Big Generator, and, uh, uh, and the other albums of that era, um, I, I think it's pretty clear that what the bands were doing was they were consolidating their sound. They, they, they were they were crystallizing the most important and relevant elements of what they do, which is progressive, but just in a shorter framework and and consolidating it in that way, and then they'd throw the odd pop song in here and there. But I think that spirit of of experimentation that is integral to prog remained. Uh, I think I think it just got truncated a little bit. Uh, sure, there were no more goblins and fairies and and valleys and fjords being being sung sung about, largely. But um, when you listen to the non-hit song content of Big Generator 90125. Uh, and some of the other bands um, and, and Genesis would fall into the same category. I think that those songs alone didn't make for a sellout in any way or, or actually a stylistic change. It just condensed what they were doing. So so they carried on what they were doing in a different way due to record label pressure. And um, uh, I think they just cut some of the fat off, if you like. They kept them the immediate and important element. So for me, it wasn't such a big paradigm shift. It really wasn't. However, having said that, I'm going to now mention the two, probably the two most controversial words in music. And without a doubt to most self-respecting prog aficionados, possibly the two most horrible words in music. And those words are love beach. (laughs) (laughs) i mean i don't even need i don't even know if you
0: need to get into the album you just gotta look at the cover
2: yeah man
1: have you seen the cover
2: good point good point there Roy. and i think you've you've hit the nail on the head there because what it really was was more a stylistic change in the way these guys presented themselves, their looks and their clothes. And you know, Alan White was wearing a scarf and sort of 80s scarf, and uh, Phil Collins was wearing that sort of uh, uh, that, that accountant suit, almost when he when he you know that yuppie kind of outfit. I, I mean, it's almost yeah, more I mean, the way they, they didn't. Than the way those they were
0: bands that weren't built on their look, and so when they were forced into. Really starting to figure out a look later on through videos and things like that. In many cases, it, they were clueless, right? They weren't. Yeah. They didn't have the rock god look of like Led Zeppelin or the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger, things like that. These these are sort of nerdy guys that played that kind of right. music, you know. And so now they got to look cool. They don't know how to do that. So it just doesn't really, it doesn't really transfer. Uh,
2: I I mean, the the cover really put me off. (laughs) But when Mm -hmm. you actually listen to what Emerson Lake and Palmer were doing, um, you know, with the possible exception of, of that last 20 minute uh, memoirs of an officer and a gentleman, (laughs) uh, I got to say, not my favorite moment in music. I I was
1: trying to find, I knew there was a famous quote about it. And I think it was, I think I was just checking to see if I could find it, but it was the rolling stone magazine review um and it said um this album makes washing the dishes seem a creative act by
2: comparison <laughs> <laughs> the
0: oh, true man, spi- spinal tap
1: <laughs> review funny. review but even I mean, at, like, even at emerson basically said that was a total embarrassment you know even they felt that about it
0: <laughs> you know for me the, the the big changing of styles in many cases i like the changes. I'm okay with with the changes, but I I just I sort of like a band trying to do something a little different without completely giving over to that. And I think that's where Mm -hmm. it's either worked for me or hasn't. Right? So for example, like I think 90125 is a is a, a perfect example of changing in a way that still keeps the soul of what the band was. Right, with songs like Changes and Hearts and Cinema, and where okay, it's not you know topographic oceans, but it's there's still some stuff in there. You're not, you know, they're not doing four minute acoustic ballads, you know what I mean? So, I thought that always was a great album. I still think it's a great album. Um, the the self I always
1: wondered, I always wondered, you know, with 90125, always wondered how many people having heard owner of a lonely heart bought the album and went you know what on earth's going on here because it right. you know it wasn't it what i mean nick alluded to this it wasn't an album full of owner of a lonely hearts no but actually i, I think i think probably what it did was you know and is it is it a combination we're talking about you know bands changing you know they you know they changed how they dressed you know they they were you know all that 9012 you know they were all in day glow and you know, whereas before, what, you know, what were the what? It didn't matter what. Yes, were are wearing. Um, you know, they had a good-looking South African. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, in the band, I'm so not wait. talking about Nick. I'm talking, I'm talking about Trevor. Trevor Raven. Um, you know, and it and it and it put them into a new space. But the, but the other side of it is actually that track, the instrumental track, Cinema, that actually was part that they chopped out of a 20 minute epic. Um, which i think is supposed to be called time and it's kind of one of those things that no one ever seems to have heard it you know so they weren't they weren't massively you know there were way elements in which they weren't doing anything drastically different um but and and you sort of listened to, to owner of a lonely heart and go you know it's not it's not necessarily something that you would think would be a surefire you know global hit that would rehabilitate a band it's got a great hook well, it's got a know, great you know, us, you know
0: i've always felt that about that song that i don't know why but but back when that was a demo labels were fighting over that song that was an in-demand song by a lot mm-hmm. of record labels that were bidding over that for some reason they knew yeah. that had a potential to be a hit i don't know that i would have heard it that way but yeah, that yeah. It, well, Tra- well, well, Trevor. Well, I,
2: th- a- I think I mentioned this the, lo- the last time we um in, in one of the previous podcasts that it almost felt to me like okay, so, cinema was interesting, very interesting as an opener to the album, then owner of a lonely heart. and almost felt to me like the band were getting it out the way, and <laughs> then these big yes harmonies came back in with Lever yeah. and you know, yeah. the, I knew my favorite band was back, yeah. Um, and the rest of the album just does the same thing so
0: so yeah I mean going to, talking about Genesis Genesis is very funny because I grew up as an 80s Genesis fan never having heard the 70s stuff and was a massive fan of like invisible Touch at the time and now I don't like that album almost at all having gone back I recognize its importance and I understand why it was successful it just doesn't hold up for me. Um, but the self-titled one does. To me, that's still sort of a prog album in a pop way. It, it's eclectic. It has some cool twists and turns, interesting songwriting, and I think with Invisible Touch, I think listening now, I feel like they took it a step maybe too far. Um, but I don't begrudge them that. I mean, I don't know. I never got into the thing where like I hate a band for changing their sound completely. Um there's been cases where it hasn't worked for me. Um like I always felt for example Metallica, right? Not that we're not that we consider them prog or anything, but you know, their their albums that everybody loves, Master of Puppets, Justice for All, you know, that kind of stuff was mm-hmm. um you know, even a prog audience still likes that stuff. I mean, it was it's outrageous material back then even now, mm-hmm. like it's incredible. And even the black album I thought was them doing their invisible touch 90125 and it was still kind of heavy and it still kind of worked and i could live with that but then when they went to load i thought well now they now they're really just they've gone a no step too far now it's not it doesn't it's not remotely metallica anymore it doesn't i can't listen to this but and again, was it that, made that, them bigger than ever so
1: but was that part of you know again i think there was a thing roundabout. about you, you know, there, there was this. There was a technological change, you know, which brought about some of the early 80s stuff. I'm not a massive Metallica fan, but Load and Reload were early '90s. Was that right? Yeah, no, so uh, no, load
0: of, it, no. That they were mid to late '90s.
1: Okay, but that mid, was mid, when the black of,
0: album was '90 90, '91.
1: Okay, but that was when grunge was coming on the scene, and right. again, a lot of the bands who were the more traditional rock bands were going. Gosh, we're going to get left behind because we right. don't do that. So you've got uh, no. It was, def, it was it was your Def Leppard albums yeah. behind you, seeing uh, slang. You know that them trying to do a bit of grunge and also a record that stuff.
0: doesn't doesn't really work for me. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: yeah, I, I, you know, I think sometimes that is. You know, I you, you wonder is that is that record company or is that simply where they were at, or was that simply a band going well, let's try and do something a bit different? I don't. Know, I don't think made. a
0: record company could have gone to big bands that had sold tens of millions of records, like a Def Leppard or Metallica and said, do this. I don't Mm -hmm. think they could have had that sway. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think it's the bands trying to, you know, only the, only the strong survive type of thing. You know, they had, we better come up with something. And it might've saved their career, frankly. I'm
2: going to put you on the spot, Roy. What's your honest opinion of Saint Anger?
0: Um it's terrible (laughs) right it's terrible i mean just horrible from beginning to end i can't i've I've maybe listened to it twice and i heard uh tick tock tick tock and i went no
1: um i do there's one little thing nick said earlier on which i just wanted to to um i didn't want to interrupt him at the time did, did you say, Nick, that kind of King Crimson hadn't really changed that much? Or did you suggest that they had? Not I, uh...
2: not for me. Not for me. Uh, I, I mean, out of the big four, certainly, the, 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 you know, with with the introduction of Adrian Belew, uh, mm. there was a new element to it. But I, I don't ever feel they approached the territory of commercialism. That, yeah, yes, that's fair. Genesis they, and They ELT didn't have a top 10
0: hit, you know, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, absolutely. I, I mean, I, mean
2: I, I don't think they were ever ever accused of selling out, you know. Yeah. Whereas the other bands were.
1: True. True.
0: Whereas just one more uh note on like Stephen Wilson for example. Um I think to the bone if you really follow Porcupine Tree and our fan from before they even got you know really popular, To the Bone is very similar to A Lightbulb Sun or a, a you know Stupid Dream album or something like that and um I, I, He was always writing four minute pop songs like that with choruses and things. So I don't know that that album is that drastic. I will say the song permanating is one. I just can't get my head around at all. I I, I'm not a fan of that song at all, but I don't think that album is that far of a stretch really from what he was doing.
1: And I think probably some of those songs that were maybe shocking on first listen, uh, you know, actually, in, in the course of time, they sort of fit. And I think the other thing about it is that maybe, I mean, I, I've sort of followed a lot of what Stephen Wilson has done, you know, adjacent to, you know, to Porcupine Tree. And I suppose if, you know, things like No Man and things like um, Blackfield, you know, I mean, the and I think at the time that we first heard some of the new Stephen Wilson stuff, I really liked the last No Man album that came out the end of last year, and I mean it's not a massive step away from that, you know. And in, ter- in terms of some of the some of the kind of techniques and the sounds that he's using, um, and I think it's all part of his DNA. It's just that sometimes he chooses to emphasize one bit over the other. I think the thing about To the Bone is, I, I, I ju- you know, it it sort of got written off at the time as oh, it's the pop album. You know, there's a lot of stuff on there that is not like that at all well, you know, and there's a lot easily of, fit
0: i've heard somebody say this and i don't know who i interviewed that brought this up but i thought it was an interesting point that a lot of what these artists like a prog artist or whatever will think is their attempt at writing a pop song like they'll write a, a popier song and think this is my hit this could be a hit it's not remotely what's popular nowadays at all like nothing yeah. unto the bone is what kids are listening to so yeah. it, you know what I mean. It may be poppy by our standards, but it's not. Where, where, pop music whereas at Rush, all.
2: whereas Rush in Roll the Bones have done a rap. <laughs> so <laughs> go figure.
0: Okay, all right. So let's so transitioning to to what I call bands that make frequent changes. Right. So it's not like a one time. Here's we're becoming a pop band from Genesis. That type of shift, which is which dominates a decade. We're talking about bands that from album to album to album kept reinventing themselves. And Rush is, I think, a perfect place to start with that. Now, do you like that versus a band that stays more the same, like a dream theater, that more or less is dream theater, right? But Rush reinvented themselves pretty much every album or every other album
1: you see i uh, when i when i the little list you sent us around i was slightly surprised because and again we we talk about rush a lot um but uh, rush radically reinventing themselves every album i i don't don't feel I, that about them at all i i, mean, in, I think, I think
0: go from go from hemispheres to uh uh permanent waves then to moving pictures, then subdivisions, oh, oh, oh. then uh, okay. whichever one came after.
2: Power um, windows.
0: Yeah, I mean, not, n- none of them
2: are the same. So so there, there's, there was clearly a change when Getty started playing keyboards and, and bass pedals. Um, and it's famously documented how, how Alex Lifeson felt that there wasn't enough guitar in the band during that period and all that. But I'm kind of with Jeff on this one when you analyze them again, condense them down to what the band is actually doing. I mean, there's this maniac best drummer in the world doing what he does, always changing it, changing it up every album. And certainly there was a stylistic shift. I mean, if if you, if you think about a, a song, say like The Big Money, um, pretty much straight ahead, four on the floor, but done Neil Pert style. So it still had those nuances and those variations. Well, that's why they... That- That's why
0: they maintain their audience, because they did they did what I was talking about, where we're going to change our sound, but we're not going to change who we are. They never wrote Invisible Touch. Right. I I mean, their hit is Tom Sawyer. That's that's a far cry from Invisible Touch or Land of Confusion. So they've they found a way to do it in a way that never, never changed what Rush was supposed to be, I think.
1: I mean, to me, to me, to me, Rush are more an example of kind of slightly tweaking it each time rather than r- radically, cha- radically changing things. You know, the, the sort of the synth sort of s- sneaked in over a period of time. And then there was a time where they were at the forefront and then they sort of tailed off a little bit. And but I, don't, I, I mean, I don't, I mean, for me, you know clearly there are things that are different be it you know getty's really high vocals or you know the you know the mythological you know fountain of uh, whatever it's called you know that, that kind of stuff you know the the, the the lyrically they changed production-wise certainly they changed along the way I, and I the think...
2: kimonos the kimonos changed. <laughs>
1: Moustaches. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just sort <laughs> of a uh,
2: maybe
0: it's a splitting hairs definition of what changes when it comes to a band like Rush or something. but
1: put, put it put it put it this way. I don't, you know, I, and again, tell me tell me if this isn't a right perception. But I think a lot of people who like Rush like the entire catalog. Probably the the album that most people, or at least I sense, don't tend to like is Hold Your Fire. Maybe that it was the one that maybe went a little bit too far in well, the there's always sort of a split. world
0: i think i think there's a middle section of rush which is moving pictures and then you're either a few steps to the left of that which is the 70s or you're a few steps to the right of it which is right the more the 80s pop stuff and it, i think the fans sort of branch out a little bit more but most fans like all all the way through one way or the other just yeah. just either one part is a little bit more depending on you're more of a heavy prog guy, or more of an '80s rock guy, or yeah.
1: you know. But I'd say you know it's not as extreme as you know, the people who like Peter Gabriel Genesis, and the people who like Phil Collins Genesis, or the people who like you know Topography Oceans, and the people who like Nine Hundred One Two Five. Right. You know, to me, it's it's it was never as extreme with them. No, to talk th-
2: about it? You want to talk about an extreme change? Uh, one of the bands that I grew up listening to, w- w- which were as important as Yes or Genesis or or uh, Pink Floyd even, uh, was a band called Wishbone Ash, mm. um, which you guys, guys might, know, might know about. Now, in my opinion, Wishbone Ash were very prog for their first three albums, very prog. They might not have had keyboards, they had two guitars, twin guitar harmony approach. Um, but... They were as important a band to me as Yes or Genesis were growing up. Mm. I mean, there was the album Argus from 1972, yeah, which yeah. to me is a prog masterpiece. It's brilliant. Um, and Pilgrimage, the prior album to that. Also very progressive, fantastic stuff. Um, and, you know, they they did morph and they made the subtle changes as as the years went on and they became more of a rock band. Then they became a bit of a metal band, then back to the hard rock. But they never lost that edge of... of proggy, bluesy, guitar-based, twin harmony guitar rock, until the late 90s, when something bizarre happened with that band. I think it was 96 or 97, thereabouts. They brought out two Electronica dance (laughs) albums, which were hits in the dance clubs of Europe. Really? But they were nothing like anything Wishbone Ash had ever done huh. before. They were pure on... Yeah, I'm, not too, I'm not familiar
0: with everything they've done, so I'm, I don't even know about that.
2: Wow. Uh, those two albums, if I'm not mistaken, were called Trans Visionary and I think Psychic Terrorism. Um, and boy, was I terrorized. I got to tell you. I, I mean, this I'm this massive Wishbone Ash fan. And all of a sudden, this full-on dr- drum machine electronica comes out I, I, I couldn't believe it um but thankfully soon after that they went back to their roots and they started doing more of the rock prog stuff again. that's funny uh, i mean some other artists
0: that uh, that change uh frequently devin townsend is one and i know maybe you guys aren't familiar with with everything he's ever done but he he's pretty drastic in how he changes from album to album um and he's done some really cool stuff casualties of cool which is a sort of a country folk record you okay. know, and then and then the strapping young lad stuff, which is you know almost death metal at times, and and the new album Empath, which is really just everything. Epic, you know, <laughs> so so he's an album that really doesn't care uh, mm. and will do anything, um, which I think is great. Uh, we talked about King Crimson. I mean, you know, the, I think the Beatles are probably the landmark for being able to shift styles. Um, from album to album, and and even within an album, you know, m- better than probably anybody that ever did it, and probably are the blueprint. Them and Queen,
2: I think maybe, maybe Frank too. Zappa could be thrown in there as well. Well, Zappa, yeah. sure. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, the Beatles were were. Uh, I suppose this, they were they were inventing it, really, weren't they? Um, you know, but yeah, for sure. That's
0: so. So then, the, on the other side of the spectrum, you have artists that don't care to change much right so they're they've they have their style their sound their groove and right you know maybe shifting kind of here and there a little but for the most part they do their thing right so and i and i think dream theater and neil morris and spock's beard and and maybe the flower kings are sort of the the later prog bands that we've been fans of the last 20 25 years i sort of one put of the, them one in of the, that what... category what do you think
1: yeah, I mean, what, one of the things I, I was I was going to say about, about about them is that probably, um, well, those bands that you've just named, they you know the core albums that they do, probably, yeah, have a narrower range of of, of style shifts, but a lot of the members of those bands then get their sort of jollies by actually being yeah. involved in side projects right. so you so that,
0: know that's an interesting way to look at it right if you take neil and mike for example and and yeah. right so they, so they'll mike will do every genre but but they're all in different bands yeah right right and, neil, and, and, neil and, will know, Jor- make the conscious
2: decision does this does the song that i've just written belong in a singer songwriter neil morse album or a transatlantic album or a flying colors album yeah. or a neil morse band album you know, he consciously writes for, for those different projects. And that, that's, that's a rare talent.
1: So, but But when I'm listening, sorry, go ahead. Well, if you take someone, I mean, thinking of even those guys aside, but, you know, take someone like Jordan Rudez. you know, and, you know, he has a a whole bunch of solo uh, albums that are, you know, piano that are, you know, his albums where he sings on them that aren't necessarily that style. He, you know, but, but when they come, you know, I think when, when that band comes back together, they do, usually what you know they they kind of do best and what they're what they're famous for
2: yeah john, john patrici's latest solo album has got this blues number on it called out of the blue yeah. which i mean i mean it's a real blues extravaganza um uh, it, it's so removed from anything he's done from dream theater and the solo actually which which is, is a very special solo, in my opinion, is unlike anything he's ever done in dream theater. So I, I think you're right there, Jeff. Yeah, these, these, these guys reserve side projects and other bands to... It's just really
0: funny because when I listen to uh, a new Neil Morse record, Solo Gratia, you know, the latest one maybe, take that. I listen to it and I'm... Because he makes one of those albums only every so often, has made one in a while... Mm-hmm when I listen to that I like that it sounds the way it sounds and that it's and there's a few twists there that are kind of fresh you know um yep. mm-hmm. but you know mostly it's a Neil Morse record as you know it him to do and I like that I like you know Distance Over Time from Dream Theater was a standard Dream Theater record that as you like it and it was good it's a great album um I don't know. Sometimes with a band like that, when it's bands you that are more your favorite bands, I think maybe you want them to, not ne- not necessarily repeat, but stay in their universe. I,
2: I think some of the brilliance in this com- comes out in exactly what you said, Roy, that, you know, if if Neil's writing for a Neil Morse progressive rock solo album, a la Sola Scriptura, now solo Gratia, and we know more or less what to expect part of the expectation and part of the excitement is asking yourself before you listen to it, how much can he do? What can he do that is new without departing too much from the expected formula? And he surprises and pleases yet again. So that's part of the brilliance. It is. It's a tough challenge
0: for, for these guys um, to, they know they have to stay within a certain scope, but they also know they don't want to repeat what they've done. And I and, and they do so much music. It, it's interesting. It's an interesting challenge. I mean, and I just can't imagine, you know, Transatlantic, for example, making an invisible touch record. Right? I mean that would just be yeah, doubt it. That would just be the most mind blowing thing you would ever hear.
2: Not and gonna think happen, about yes.
0: that if you were a Genesis fan from sev from the seventies. How yeah. that album
2: sounded to you
0: you know
2: um it's pretty insane yeah i I mean I mean being a big fan of lamb lies down on Broadway and foxtrot and trespass it was a it was a shock to the system there's no doubt it, it took some getting used to no doubt about it but
1: um, but 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 the counter to that is if in 1987 they brought out you know the lamb part two you know what you know what? Would we, you know, would we even be talking about them today? You know, I think it wouldn't have made you know, any sense. Yeah, it wouldn't have made it, any it, sense. It, it was, you know, there, there's a, there's, there's probably survival as well. And we talked about, you know, is it record company or, or what is it? Ultimately, any band wants to fill a stadium, wants to sell records, and, and presumably everything is a, you know, unless, and I think the world has changed now because I think a lot of the artists that we've talked about, number one they're established in a genre that is, you know, I mean, I I'm, I don't know anything about the business behind it, but my guess is that w- there's a new Flower Kings album, right? You know, I'm sure that pretty much the label will know roughly how much that will sell, you know, they, and they, they know that there's a fan base there who will buy a Flower Kings album, you know, and, you know, that doesn't have to sell as many copies as Invisible Touch because you know, the world is different than it than it was then. Um, I think probably in that period of the 70s and the 80s when all those changes were going on, when you punk, you know, new wave, electronic stuff, you know, some of this stuff comes out of the bands trying to remain relevant and trying to retain their audience that, you know, the equivalent audience is listening to Duran Duran or, you know, b- bands like that. So I, I think today, and, and you know, th- the music industry is is not the same has shifted drastically but i think the other thing is that you know bands can work in their genre and and seem to be able to put out albums and sell you know enough um by sort of staying true to 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 what they do
0: nowadays you have to because the counter uh to that would not be the success of invisible touch it would be the end of those artists careers, if they came out and tried to do a hip hop record to compete with, you know, (laughs) the current climate, it would be the end. Like they would never be able to make another record again.
2: So you you could also look at it the other way and analyze which bands have gone from being highly pop to more progressive. And there are a couple that come to mind. I mean, uh, I don't know, Tears for Fears. Uh, I think that the, Ra- the Raul album, Raul and the Kings of Spain, okay, admittedly, it was Roland Orzabal on his own without Kurt Smith, but it was still Tears for Fears. And when that album came out, now I've, I've always loved everything Tears for Fears have ever done, um, but I knew them as a pop band. Raul, I felt, was slightly more progressive rock. Yeah. So, you know, it can also be said that that, that bands have made the shift uh, in the other direction, certain bands. And, uh, you know, Jethro Tull went from being a blues band to
1: mm. then creating Aqualung and thick as a brick, um, and to then... create to creating um I can't <laughs> I'm not remembering my album Crest of a Neve. I just always bit...
0: I always felt that if you were a band that had a certain sound, uh, again maybe a Metallica is a good example, but you could How have done one sweet? song. You could have done one song like your old style somewhere to appease some fans. You know, there's a way to sort of. You did not. You didn't need to go all in on this one sound, or maybe maybe that's just me dreaming, but that, that it wouldn't really work at all. But um, I always felt there's a way to adopt a new sound, but still keep your foot in in some of your old style a little bit and still sort of do it. But maybe maybe not.
1: The one the one I wanted to throw in uh, um um to to get Nick's thoughts on um what about Marillion, Nick? <laughs> well i
0: don't think they change much do you i mean i mean aside
2: from
1: I the do.
0: singer change i think they've pretty much stayed to what they usually do right
2: yeah no, no roy i i mean there, there was a change there's no doubt about it fish had a very specific sound uh he was a he was a very particular songwriter and composer um uh, lyric lyrically he had a he had a very individual style and I think when when he left and Hogarth came in, there was a stylistic change, not so much in Holidays in Eden, the first album with with, with Steve Hogarth, because most of that material had already been written, actually, in in Fisher's days. Um,
1: seasons End. No I alert. beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. No seasons alert. End, I'm talking
2: about, of course. Um, and most of that material had been written already. So, so there wasn't such a change there. It was still pretty proggy. But I think it's true to say that after that, that that um, that more new wave psychedelic furs kind of feeling came into their music, and uh, there was a shift. Uh, to a lot of people who were never particularly into Meridian, same old, same old sounds sounds kind of the same, but not really. When you analyse it, I th- I think there's there's a definite shift. But what about the whole
0: Garth though?
1: Well, I think, but I suppose back to my when I talked at the start, I mean, Marillion to me were a band that I could think of that actually encompassed the three categories that I talked about at the start. So clearly a very significant shift by losing Fish and having Hogarth come in. And, you know, the effects of that, as as, as Nick said, didn't immediately kick in in the first album, but they they rippled down through the career. I mean, they have also done... Probably some stylistic shifts as well. I mean, we were talking about Holidays in Eden, the second album, and you know it it was you know in places a much you know kind of popular album. You felt like maybe they were trying to write you know hit singles um at times, but then I think they also then seemed to have got into a um different writing style which has probably run out the last maybe six or seven albums in terms of that you know when we get together we we come and do marillion we and i, I mean they, they release albums of the sort of the jams you know jams recorded um their producer kind of chops out bits and goes what about that and from that they craft their song so actually they changed their writing style from that you know from something where you know was probably Pre-written music with Fish's lyrics layered on top. I think the other thing is that they've actually shifted quite a bit lyrically, you know, and not just from the from the from the Fish era, but you know, their their last album, you know, Fear, the last album was a you know a very very political album, which I mean, they'd occasionally touched on on I guess that song Gaza was quite quite sort of about the Middle East, um, you know, from the album before, but you know i think i think they've had an awful lot of shifts but a bit like the rush thing Most yeah uh, to, their me, the, to like, me
0: they're minor shifts I, again if i'm comparing it to genesis or stephen wilson or something like that i don't think it's well, yeah, but well you, again, you, you, com- you
1: compare you compare the first album to kaylee you know it's you know even within the two or three albums they made they made they made you a, know who's I a agree. band that
0: is is ch- is finding ways to change, even if it's slightly, from album to album, from the newer bands is Haken. You know, I think if Haken. you go, if you go from Aquarius to the Mountain, which is well, which the, is a very the big change came with the Mountain and, and the then, and then even and then Affinity, which has a very eighties influence to it, mm. um, a lot yeah. of synth sounds and and and. Weird, you know, 80s kind of drum sounds. And and then the new stuff has been very heavy. Um, they're still staying within their you sound, know, you know, but it's, j- it's, it's just, they're, just they're not repeating to, themselves.
2: Just, just going back to Jeff's, Jeff's question about Marillion, you know, I think again, that, that was a musical change that was perhaps impelled by record company involvement. I mean, very famously, Marillion invented crowdfunding in the music industry. Yep. Um, by was it anorakophobia correct me if i'm wrong jeff no it um, was
1: actually it was actually the tour. it was actually a tour an american tour that it was a tour but then from. it
2: be, but then it became the album but, then, but, right. but
1: the, well they, they they crowdfunded the tour first and then their next right. album they did that yeah, yeah which okay is
2: so so you know these guys invented an entire music industry business model Uh, which has now become de rigueur, I know, but it was revolutionary at the time. And they did that because they wanted no record company interference with their creative control. And um, you can hear that in the music. There's definitely an ebb and flow stylistically in where Marillion were and where they went to. And they're as great a band today as they were with Fish. They're just a different band.
0: Well, cool. I mean, I think that's, that covered a lot of bands that, that we sort of wanted to talk about. I mean, at the end of the day, I think it all comes down to if the songs are good or if the music is good, I, yeah, honestly. And, and maybe there's certain cases where maybe with the new Stephen Wilson stuff, we'll see what people think of the album once it's out. But, you know, is it change for change's sake or or is or is it actually good, at, you know, when it's done? So we'll see. Yeah. Um,
1: I think so, i th- i I just think I think that you know, there's a lot of people who probably won't, you know, who, who will be turned off by what Stephen Wilson has done. But I think in the long term, you know, I don't think he I don't think, you know, that type of album he'll lose a lot of fans. You know, i th- I think I think he's he's on a good tra- trajectory with with everything he's doing, and he might, might... gain a lot
0: of fans because he's on TikTok now. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, always good chatting with you guys we'll see you again soon Hope yep. hope uh everybody enjoyed this little chat and uh more podcasts and things to come we've almost wrapped up 2020 which is pretty cool mm. and i'm sure we'll have a best of 2020 episode that we got to do at some point although i have no idea how we'll do that with the 50 somewhat albums that we have to talk about <laughs> in whatever that one's yes. gonna be
1: five episodes
0: yeah part one yeah all right guys i'm, you gonna, see I'm
1: gonna go off and give and give
2: Love Beach another go. Yeah, you do that. <laughs> <laughs> bye, guys. We'll see Thanks. Ya. Bye, bye, Roy. Bye, bye Jim. Bye, bye, everybody. Guys.